Good evening, Severn. Great evening, indeed. Yeah. This being Easter weekend, I imagine um, there's quite a few of you, I would guess, who had some extra time off of work or school. So I just want to say up front, thank you for choosing to spend your Friday evening with us. We definitely appreciate it. The question, of course, is why are we gathering on a Friday evening? And the simple, the obvious answer is that it's Good Friday. This is the anniversary of Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial, which along with Easter Sunday, we as Christians believe is the most important event in history. So that's why it's been a tradition for Christians since at least the fourth century to gather today on this day to remember Jesus' death. But that doesn't really answer the question. So now the question becomes, well, why is this an important tradition to keep? If you think about it, for the last couple thousand years, we've been talking about that topic, Jesus' death and burial, at least once a week, every week for 2,000 years. Is it really necessary to add one more holy day to our already busy calendar? In other words, do we really need this ritual and this tradition? And in one sense, no. I was waiting to see if anybody was leaving. That's not permission to leave. In one sense, no, because of course the New Testament teaches that we're not made right with God by keeping rituals and feasts and traditions. We're made right with God through a living and active faith in His Son and what He's accomplished for us. That's what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But I think sometimes the temptation, especially in the, in the more modern, especially Protestant church, is to just throw out the baby with the bathwater and, and think that just we should avoid tradition at all costs. But when we do tradition properly... It has a very powerful effect on our faith and obedience. And to understand what I mean by that, there's probably no better place to look than the history of the Jewish people. And I'm going somewhere with this. You'll see where I'm going with it. The Bible storybook that my wife and I read to our kids, it actually calls this history the hard and happy history of Israel, which is just a perfect descriptor because if you, if you know anything about Jewish history, from, from the very beginning of their existence, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lots of memorable and exciting experiences, but I think this is a fair thing to say, they've probably been the most persecuted people group in history. We just go through a few things here. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were invaded and taken captive by the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. They were conquered and ruled by Greece and Rome. They were driven out of their homeland, scattered across the globe. And just in the past two centuries, they've been systematically targeted and murdered by Russian Bolsheviks, German Nazis, Soviet communists. And to this day, of course, anti-Semitism still rears its ugly head, not just, not just in Islamic terrorist organizations, but right in our own backyard. And yet... Despite all these attempts for thousands of years to wipe the Jewish people off the map, they're still here. And in many ways, they've managed to keep their unique culture and identity and thrive. And that's why one Jewish scholar, his name is Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman, he argues that the survival and prosperity and thriving of the Jewish people is really a strong argument in favor of the existence of the God of the Bible, which I, if we had time to talk about that, I would. What I think is more remarkable, though, than just simply the fact that the Jews have survived and thrived is that throughout this thousands-of-year history of unimaginable suffering, a very sizable portion of these men and women have held on to their faith in God and the belief that one day He's going to right all the wrongs that have been done against them. And the question then becomes, how is that possible for thousands of years to hold on to faith in God after all they've been through? And N.T. Wright, who's one of the most respected New Testament scholars alive today. He actually asked and answered the same question in his book called Simply Jesus. 
I just want to read to you what he says here. How on earth do you sustain hope while you're watching one regime after another come and go, some promising better things, but all letting you down in the end? How can you go on believing from generation to generation that one day God will come and take charge? Answer, you tell the story, you sing the songs, and you keep celebrating God's victory even though it keeps on not happening. And the story above all stories for the Jewish people was the story of the Exodus, the time when God heard the cries of His people in their slavery to Egypt and came to rescue them, bringing them through the Red Sea at Passover time, leading them through the desert and home to their promised land, end quote. In other words, if you listen to what he said there, the means that God used to keep the Jewish people's faith, hope, and identity alive during unimaginable suffering, the means that he used was tradition, especially the tradition of Passover when year after year they gathered together to rehearse the story of their exodus from Egypt. And I told you I was going somewhere with this. That's why we're here tonight. It was no accident that Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem to suffer and die at the time of the Passover celebration. It was no coincidence that Jesus chose the Passover meal to institute what we call the Lord's Supper, which we'll be partaking of later. The exodus from slavery in Egypt was the precursor of our ultimate exodus from slavery to sin. And the Passover lamb, whose blood saved the Jews from death, was a foreshadow of Jesus, whose blood would save people from every nation from death. So this is our exodus story. This is our Passover gathering. And like the Jewish people before us, we rehearse this story, we keep singing these songs, we keep this tradition, not to earn God's grace, not to become His people, but because we already are His people by grace, through faith, and gathering here in remembrance is one of the ways we keep that faith, hope, and identity alive no matter what comes our way. That's why we're here on a Friday night. So if you've been with us for the past dozen or so Sundays, and you know we've been going through the Gospel of Mark and attempting to answer the question, who is the real Jesus? So last Sunday, if you were here, David looked at Mark chapter 11 and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem the week before he died. And of course, this Sunday, Ryan's going to look at Mark chapter 16 and Jesus' resurrection three days after he died. Tonight, I'm going to try to fill in the gap between those two events by walking us through a pretty good portion of Mark chapters 14 and 15, looking at Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, and death. But I'm actually going to try to answer a different question. I just told you what we've been trying to answer is, who is Jesus? But tonight I want to ask, who are you? And believe it or not, those two questions are not mutually exclusive. If we really want to know the real Jesus, then we need to know what He thinks and how He feels about us. And the best place, of course, to see that is Calvary. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ on that first Good Friday shows us two truths about ourselves that are absolutely vital to understanding who we are and therefore absolutely vital to maintaining and obtaining peace, fulfillment, security, purpose. So what I want to do now is find out what these two truths are by beginning in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. At this point in Mark's gospel, his disciples have been following him for around three years, Jesus' disciples have. If you think about it, that's over 20,000 hours of listening to Jesus' teachings, watching him interact with other people and handle all kinds of sensitive situations and witnessing him heal the sick, feed the poor, command the sea, raise the dead, forgive sins. Now, if the Bible were mainly a self-help book or a personal growth guide, 
You would think at this point in the story, after so many hours of life coaching by Jesus, God made man, you'd think at this point in the story, the disciples would be making some pretty good decisions, showing a lot of courage, showing a lot of faith. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a true story with real people like you and like me. And one of the reasons for believing the Bible is true, and specifically the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, is that they don't omit the inconvenient and embarrassing details about these men who would go on to become leaders in the Christian movement. So here at the end of the story in Mark chapter 14, let me just summarize four things that we find these men doing. Number one, After eating the Passover meal with his disciples, probably sometime after midnight early on Friday, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his three closest disciples, to one of his favorite spots to pray, the Garden of Gethsemane. And in verses 33 through 34, we're told that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. And and then he explicitly says to his disciples that his soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And so he asked them to sit and be watchful and pray. And you would think, as Jesus' closest friends, seeing him in such a state of emotional distress, that that would be a pretty easy ask. And yet, not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus returns to find them sleeping. Number one. Second thing we find the disciples doing. Immediately after this, a crowd comes into the garden armed with clubs and swords, and they're there to arrest Jesus and take him away. And even though, I said this just a second ago, even though the disciples have listened to probably hours of Jesus' teaching on loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, Peter draws out a sword, strikes at one of these men, and cuts off his ear. And after Jesus rebukes him, we're told in verse 50 that Peter and the rest of the disciples all left Jesus and fled. That's number two. The third thing we find them doing later as Jesus is brought before the Jewish high priest and the Jewish governing council, Peter is actually following at a distance. Yes, he just blew it royally, but he still actually loves Jesus. So he's following him, and he enters the courtyard right outside where the trial is happening. But unfortunately, he's recognized as one of Jesus' disciples by a servant girl. So three times, Peter denies Jesus, even going so far as to call down curses on himself and to swear in verse 71, these are his words, I do not know this man of whom you speak. That's the same Peter who back in Mark chapter 8, Pastor Ryan preached on this, had boldly declared to Jesus, you are the Christ, and now it's, I don't know you. And then finally, if we jump jump over to Mark chapter 15, The fourth thing we find the disciples doing, or I I should really say not doing, after Jesus dies, it's not the disciples who work up the courage to go to the Roman governor and ask for their beloved rabbi's body. It's a man who up to this point in Mark's gospel has never even been mentioned. Now, after hearing all of that, the question that, that would probably be on my mind if I were sitting out there is, how is that possible? How could these men who spent so much face-to-face time with the Son of God and genuinely loved Him, how could they end up failing Him so spectacularly? And the answer is the first big idea we have tonight, the the first truth that I told you that Good Friday teaches us about the disciples and teaches us about ourselves. Here it is, that we are more sinful than we would dare believe. Now, before I delve too deeply into that idea, let me just pause for a second and clarify what I mean by sinful 
and sin, because I realize that those are not very popular words today. Some people may consider them outdated. Even in the church, we throw those words around and just assume we're all on the same page about what they mean. But the behavior of the disciples here at the end of Mark's gospel is really like a perfect picture of the core essence of sin. There's a whole lot of ways to sin. I think we all know that by experience. But at their core, all sins have the same thing in common. The disciples literally walked and talked with the God who made them and loved them. That's who we believe Jesus is. They walked and talked with the God who made them and loved them. And yet at the end, they failed to honor and love Him as He deserved. That is the essence of sin. That's what makes sin, sin. That's why in the Old Testament, after King David slept with another man's wife and had that man killed, he cried out to God and said, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, of course, David recognized that he had hurt other people really badly, but he knew that behind those atrocities, the greatest atrocity was his lack of love and honor to the infinite God. And the reason it's important to understand that essence of sin is because otherwise, it can be very easy to convince ourselves that we're really not sinful, that we really don't need Christianity because because at our core, we're really just good people. And who needs a savior when you don't need saving? But again, if if we have that mindset, it completely misses what the essence of sin is. Imagine a scenario for a minute. Imagine a single mother who works multiple jobs. She sacrifices her own dreams, her own comforts to make sure that her son has a roof over his head, food in his belly, love in his heart, and the best education she can afford. So this son grows up and becomes a world-renowned research scientist, and and the work that he does actually brings great advancements in cancer treatment. So this man is literally saving lives. And then outside of work, in his spare time, he travels with Doctors Without Borders and helps people in third world countries. And then in his community, he's known by everyone as an honest and trustworthy man, and his house is a favorite house for trick-or-treaters because his warmth and generosity are unmatched. But now imagine that that same man has placed his mother in a nursing home, and he hasn't spoken to her or visited her in 10 years. And when people ask, do you have any family? He says, no, I have none. And when they ask, how did you get to where you are today? He responds with a lot of luck and hard work. Now, no matter how many great achievements that man has, no matter how many good works he does, how many great virtuous character traits he has, we would all agree that his goodness is severely deficient because he has ignored and denied the one person above all others who loved him and made him who he was. He's not a good man. He's a proud and selfish man masquerading as a good man. And that's what the disciples did when they abandoned Jesus. That is what we all do all too often when we fail to love and honor the God who made us, sustains us, and loves us. Written all over the pages of Scripture, and we know this deep in our hearts, none of us are truly good. We are all sinful. But remember, that's not really what I said. I didn't say that Good Friday teaches us that we're sinful. I said that it teaches us that we're all more sinful than we would dare believe. And that's a crucial distinction because I think a lot of us have the mindset, even though we we don't say it out loud, that, okay, Anthony, I agree with you. I'm sinful, but I'm not that sinful. Or I'm not perfect, but I would never do that. And believe it or not, that's exactly how the disciples felt too. If we, if we back up just a little bit, just a few hours before Jesus is arrested and the disciples flee, we find Jesus and them eating the Passover meal sometime between sundown and midnight on Thursday evening. And during this meal, 
Jesus drops a bomb on his closest friends by foretelling them just how bad things are going to get. I want you to hear what he says to them. This is Mark 14, 18. This is before all these things have happened. They haven't fled from him yet or any of that. They're having this meal, and here's what he says. As they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, we know, of course, I think all of us know this, that this traitor ends up being Judas Iscariot. Judas has become synonymous with betrayal, even in our culture outside of the church. But the other disciples here have no idea. So I want to draw your attention to their response in the very next verse, in verse 19. Listen to what they do. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? Now, I've always read this like the disciples are displaying a remarkable amount of humility and self-awareness, right? Instead of assuming it's everybody else, they recognize their own weakness and ask, is it me? And while that may be true to, to some degree, what I found out when I was studying this is that's really not the best way to read their question. In the original language in the Greek, there's actually a little participle here that's used when the speaker actually expects a negative answer from their question. So really, the better way to translate their question is something like this. Surely not I. Now, if you think about that, there's probably all sorts of emotions behind a question like that. Sadness, fear, insecurity, but also, I think, a degree of pride. You can hear in that like a mixture of uncertainty and confidence. Surely, surely not me. I love you, Jesus. There's no way it could be me, right? But as is the case so often in all of our lives, that self-confidence is about to dig in and gain the upper hand. So they finish the Passover meal, and before Jesus enters the garden to pray, they go out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus decides to drop another bomb on his friends. They're not having a good evening. Listen to what he says this time. We're in Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 28. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, remember earlier, it was one of you will betray me. And now it's all of you will fall away. And again, I want to draw your attention to the way the disciples respond and pay attention here to how their response is different than previously. Listen to verses 29 through 30. Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, Peter, if you were paying attention during this Mark series, is often the first one to open his mouth and insert his foot. He's the first one to speak up here. And notice that all of the potential humility and uncertainty is gone. And all there is is confidence now. I will never fall away. And in the next verse, he gets even more bold. He says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Not only that, but remember previously, all of the disciples focused on themselves. Surely not I. They focused on themselves. But now Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will. So now the finger pointing begins. But let's be fair. Peter often gets a bad rap for being overconfident. But I want you to listen to the next verse. This is verse 31. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And here's the the kicker. And they all said the same. All of the disciples said the same thing. I will never deny you. 
Now, just think about this for a minute. I said this earlier. These men had spent three years with Jesus. And in those three years, they had listened to him command demons and watch them flee in terror. They'd heard him speak words of power and watch people rise from the dead. They'd heard him shout peace to a storm and watch the winds and the waves obey him. And just a few hours before this story we're reading right now, Jesus actually told two of his disciples to go into town and to prepare the Passover. And he told them exactly how all the details were going to work out. And it happened just like he said. Here's my point. From the mundane to the extraordinary, the disciples had spent three years watching Jesus speak in truth and power. When he commanded or foretold something, it happened. His track record was 100%. But now, as he plainly tells them that they're going to stumble and fall away, they don't believe in him. They believe in themselves and their own strength and their own power. Why? The answer is simple but sobering because just like all of us, they can't bring themselves to believe that they would really fail that badly, that they would really disappoint and deny and abandon their friend and master after so much that he's done for them. They, like us, are more sinful than they would dare believe. In 1960, you may know this story, in 1960, a man named Adolf Eichmann was captured, and he was taken to Israel to stand trial for participating in the Holocaust, specifically as one of the people in charge of the Auschwitz, excuse me, concentration camp. Another man by the name of Yehiel Denur was actually one of the Jewish prisoners at the Auschwitz concentration camp and one of the few people that met Mr. Eichmann and survived. So he was called upon to testify at the trial because they needed witnesses. However, after he gave his opening testimony, he actually fainted and couldn't continue any farther. And later, in an interview with 60 Minutes, he explained why he fainted. It wasn't because of the painful memories or the fear or the hatred. It was because, and we're talking now about this this Jewish Holocaust survivor looking across the room at his Nazi tormentor. The reason he fainted is because of the sudden and horrifying realization that Eichmann was a man just like himself. These are his words. I'm going to quote them. I was afraid of myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Now, by realizing that, Mr. Denor was not downplaying the evil of the Nazi genocide. If anything, he was magnifying it and showing us its true nature. What he was showing us is that it's not just a special, easily recognizable category of monsters that are capable of committing great sins. It's a soldier just trying to obey orders. It's a fun-loving guy who had too many drinks. It's a driven and motivated woman just trying to climb the corporate ladder. It's the exhausted and lonely parent just looking for a friend. It is all of us. We are all capable of great sin, but we dare not believe it. And I can tell you from personal experience that some of the most foolish and regrettable words I have ever uttered are, I would never. And on Good Friday, Jesus' disciples probably felt exactly the same. If they can fall from such heights of confidence to such depths of failure after spending three years of face-to-face time with God, then who do we think we are? We are all more sinful than we dare believe. 
Now, I know all that's very heavy. And if we stopped there, we would know ourselves better, but we would be crushed by the weight of that knowledge. We wouldn't know ourselves completely. The big question now is, how does Jesus respond to the unbelievable sinfulness of his disciples? And therefore, how does he respond to ours? And the logical response, the one that I think that most of us, including myself, would choose, would be to treat the disciples the same way they treated him. Abandon them, forget about them, ignore them when they most need you. In short, put distance between yourself and those so-called friends so that they can never let you down again. But as is so often the case with Jesus, he does exactly the opposite of what we would do. Rather than push these men away and put up a barrier, he tears one down so they can come even closer. I want you to listen to what happens the moment Jesus dies on the cross. This is Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 38. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. All three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them record this little detail about that curtain temple being torn, but not a single one of them actually offer us an interpretation of what it means, which again is just one more piece of strong evidence that it really happened. They didn't start with like a spiritual truth and then fabricate an event to prove it. They just recorded the event and then figured out what it meant later. So the question is, well, what did it mean? And and what you have to understand is, is the Jewish temple had several different areas that got progressively more restricted and holy the farther you went in. And the innermost area was called the Holy of Holies. And it was separated by this gigantic curtain. And this was the place where once a year the Jewish high priest would enter in with a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And so what we see by that is that this curtain was a symbol of how our great sinfulness kept us separated from a close relationship with God. Now, I know saying that on the surface to some of you might seem like rude of God, like almost standoffish. Why would he, why would he keep himself separated from us? That doesn't sound very nice. But, but if, that's, if that's what comes into your mind, that, that betrays a low view of God's nature. The Bible describes God as holy, which means he's completely pure, separated from sin, separated from evil, separated from anything impure. The Bible also describes God as a consuming fire. He is so pure that if any impure or sinful, evil thing comes into his presence, it is consumed. So so if we were to say, it's not very nice for God to separate us from himself, that's like saying, it's not very nice for fire to burn us. Fire can't stop burning. If it does, it denies its nature. Then it becomes no longer fire. And if it's no longer fire, yes, it'll stop burning you, but it won't warm you. It won't cook your food. It won't provide you light. And in the same way, God can't deny his holiness because it's an essential part of who he is. If he denies his holiness, he denies himself and all the other attributes that we find a whole lot more acceptable is love, kindness, grace, comfort, strength. So here's what God did do, because he can't deny himself. What he did do is he gave his people the temple and he gave them animal sacrifices. He gave them the holy of holies so that the fire of his divine nature could warm them and bring them light without consuming them. But that required a separation between him and us. And and that's what this curtain symbolized. So when Jesus died and that temple curtain tore from the top to the bottom, 
the meaning was clear. For everyone who appropriates Jesus' sacrifice, who claims it as their own, the separation between us and God is gone. You don't have to be a high priest. You don't have to go through a bunch of rituals. You don't have to offer sacrifices because Jesus, through His own blood sacrifice, through His death, has atoned for our sins once and for all, and therefore made a way for us to be made right with God so that we now can have free and direct and bold access to God as our Father, Savior, and friend. And now, because the animal sacrifices are no longer needed, because we're not separated anymore, that physical temple has been made obsolete because Scripture tells us now that we are God's temple for His Spirit to dwell in directly, both individually and corporately, as a body. And just so you know that I'm not making this up, this is the way Christians have understood this from the beginning. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Listen to what it says here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, that would have been an absurd concept to a first century Jew. We wouldn't have had confidence to enter the holy places. We would have had a death wish to enter the holy places. But here's why. They have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, now listen, because Jesus did all this, because He, because he removed the separation, here's what we get, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So that brings me back to the question I started with a minute ago. After Jesus' disciples fail Him so spectacularly and repeatedly, what was His response? Not to push them away, but to make a way for them to draw near, closer than ever before. And the only explanation for a response like that is the second and final truth that Good Friday teaches us about ourselves. Yes, we are more sinful than we would dare believe, but number two, we are also more loved than we would dare imagine. God the Father sent His Son to remove the separation between us and Him out of love, and the Son accepted this mission and laid down His life to accomplish it out of love. But to really begin to plumb the depths of this kind of love, we have to look at what it cost Jesus. So what I want to do with just the remaining few minutes of my time as the worship team prepares to come up, before we take communion, all I want to do now is read Mark's account of Jesus' suffering in chapter 15. No commentary, no illustrations. I would even invite you to close your eyes if you'd like. I just, I just want us to listen with fresh ears and look with fresh eyes on the passion of Jesus Christ where He displayed how much He loves you. We're in Mark chapter 15. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up, led Him away, and handed Him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked Him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, you say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. 
At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people the prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And again they shouted, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What's he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the palace that is the governor's residence. And they called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. And getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, put his clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then they crucified him. And they divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, and offered him a drink and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus then let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses, and Salome. 
In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. And when it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, he came boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he'd already died. And when he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And after he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. That is what it took for our unbelievable sinfulness to be paid for so that we who often run away from God could return and draw near. And that is an unimaginable love. And the only appropriate response to such a love is not to reject it, not to push it away, but to accept it and be changed by it. It does no good for a starving traveler to sit and stare at a feast. He must partake. He must eat and drink to experience the joy and the nourishment that is free for the taking. And that's why the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's why before Jesus left his disciples to go to the cross, he didn't merely give them a teaching or a prayer. He gave them a meal. He gave them a meal to remind them that in order for his suffering and death to have its full effect on them, to change them, save them, forgive them, they must and we must actually partake of it. We must make it our own and share in it through faith. And these elements here at the front of the room, this bread and this cup, they are physical, tangible reminders of our great sinfulness and his great love. And when we come and take them in faith, what we're saying is that his body was broken for me and his blood was shed for me. And like the old song says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. So while Sarah and the worship team sing this next song, I invite you to come up, receive the bread, receive the cup, take them back to your seats, worship, pray, contemplate. And when everybody's returned to their seats, I'll come back up here and we will partake of the Lord's table together. Mark chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Let's take the bread together. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's take the cup together. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, we love you because you first loved us. And we thank you 
for sending your son to take our place, to take our great sinfulness on his shoulders, pay a debt that he never owed so that we could be debt free and no longer separated from you. You are the greatest thing in this universe. I'm so glad you haven't withheld yourself from us, even though we deserved it. As we move forward from here, Lord, help us to remember and be honest with ourselves that we are all more sinful than we would dare believe, but don't let us be crushed by that weight. Let us look to the cross every day and remind us by your Spirit that we are also more loved than we would dare imagine. So again, we say thank you, not just that you sent Jesus to die, but that you raised him to life. And one day he is coming back for us. And until that day, we have his spirit living in us and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, church, I love you. But more importantly, God loves you. I hope to see you on Easter Sunday. Be blessed. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.